Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The GOAT, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th. Do you share this with anyone in your family or is this kind of just something that you do for you? Oh no, it's a family thing. It's bigger than Christmas for us. Bigger than Christmas. It's Jake Marin, and I'm here with the one and only Claire Kramer. Claire, say hey. Hey. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi, Jake. What if I wasn't the one and only? What if AI has already gotten to me, and I'm just a version of myself programmed talking to you? Uh, let's not go down that road, because that is pretty scary. It's coming. What? <laughs> it's coming. But we're getting off topic, because i got to get us back. We are having a Marvel director. That's right. Ali Salim, the director and executive producer of Secret Invasion, is here. And he's way more than just a director, guys. He's super cool, right, Claire? Oh my gosh. Yeah. First of all, I love Marvel. So I'm already like bowing down to him. Yeah. And Ali's just like, I had not previously met him or worked with him. Now I'm uh-huh. dying to because hearing him talk about filming Secret Invasion and like what a piece of life work this project really was. He was there for months and months and months. 20 months. Oh my gosh, to make this. Yeah, and you really get the sense for Ali that it's not just about oh it's a job and I'm making this, you know, series or oh I'm just directing. It's like he pours his whole soul into it. It's a passion. And that comes through Mm -hmm. so much in everything he talks about. So I'm like desperate to work with him. (laughs) He did uh, a couple episodes of one of my favorite series of all times, The Looming Tower, about 9-11 and all that. He's just, he's such a great director. He really brings things alive. And uh, Secret Invasion is so awesome. I've really enjoyed it thus far. But he's talking about the Tour de France. And he's not just talking about it like, oh, I enjoy this. The knowledge he spews is going to blow your mind, and the passion he has, it's contagious, Claire. Like, I got so excited after talking to him, and I had no interest in the Tour de France going up, honestly. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. No, I did have an interest, but now I'm more passionate. Honestly, looking up YouTube clips, you guys know me. I get into something. I get into it. So this is a great episode. Ali Salim on Tour de France. Okay, so Ali, let me ask you this. How did the Tour de France get its name? What is the origin? I mean, is it just because it's a bike race through France? Oh, I didn't know that these were going to be history questions, which I'm not I'm not much of a historian. I know a little bit about the past. I, I've always assumed that it was a tour of France, and so it became known as the Tour de France. <laughs> but 
like a couple of the history things I know are the yellow jersey, which is, signifies the leader, mm. came from the fact that in the early days, the newspaper that was printed on yellow uh, uh -huh. paper, like it must have been Le Monde, the newspaper Le Monde, was printed on yellow. And they sponsored the early days of not of the tour, but of the, the leader. So they would sponsor who was leading and to get people to go and then read the newspaper about the rest of the race. And so the, the leader, whoever's leading, always wore yellow oh. in connection with the color of their newsprint. So that's one piece of history that I know. That's a good piece of history. And I, I had no clue that was why. And then like the, the leader in the mountains, the rider who gets the most mountain points by summiting the... Uh -huh. You know, it's it's not only time, but points that they gain for hitting. And some days there are many summits, right? Uh -huh. And so different guys will collect different points at each summit. But the leader wears polka dot, which comes from the chocolate bar company that sponsored the first oh. mountain. So yeah. they're polka dot. I love this. See, you yeah. do know quite a bit of history, even though you think you don't. A little bit. A little bit. A little yeah. bit. And Jake, to that note, I just have to hop in and say, could you give us a definition of Tour de France for those who may be unfamiliar with the race. Could you just describe what the race is and how it functions over the course of however many days? Well, it's a stage race, which is a specific kind of endurance race in cycling. There are many different kinds of races. Many of them are one day long. Uh -huh. The spring classics that we know about, the Paris-Roubaix over the cobblestones, it's one day, one grueling day. But there's a different sort of stamina and strategy that you need to ride over multiple days. So the Tour de France is a 21 stage wow. race that takes place over three weeks. They have two rest days. The second Monday and the third Monday are rest days. Other than that, they're just riding. And it's uh, the route changes every year, but it goes through the flatlands and it goes through the Pyrenees and it goes through the Alps. So it challenges the sprinters who like it fast and flat it challenges the mountain climbers who really bust their lungs going to peaks that none of us could even drive up to and it takes place over these three weeks 21 stages they have teams i think we think of it as you know a winner like lance armstrong crossing the finish line first but the teams consist of nine riders and the riders have specialties and every team selects a GC, a general category guy, somebody who's really good on the flats and really good in the mountains, or maybe not really good, but can maintain his position. Yeah. And then everybody else on the team supports him. So they have climbers to help him climb. They have sprinters to take the sponsor's jersey across the finish line first. They have what are called domestiques, people who are like butlers to the leader. They go back and they get food and they race the food back up. Whoa. And their job is only to support the team, not to try and win the race. At the end of each day, you have a time. Yeah, You build the time over the course of those three weeks. And the person with the shortest time stands on the podium in Paris on the last day. And the, the more you get into the minutia, the more exciting it becomes to watch the lead out train how the whole mm -hmm. team forms in front of the sprinter to pull the sprinter to the finish line. And then he literally just pulls out at the last second. He drifts and then he just goes. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really fun to watch. You know, my two boys, my two adult boys still play baseball. And the minutia that they understand about when the right fielder shifts his left foot this way, the ball is going to go. That's how I've 
come to love cycling over the years is the minutia of how the team manages and strategizes. The hero worship of Lance Armstrong is not so interesting to me. Uh-huh. Did I define what the tour was? That's an excellent definition. You completely nailed it, out. <laughs> completely nailed it. Okay, great. How did you get into watching the Tour de France? That's not a typical sport, you know, in America that people watch all the time. I'm curious. So I came to it, uh, it must have been 1965. I was five years old, four, four okay. and a half, five years old. And my father came from Egypt. He's an Egyptian. And he was a professor back in Minnesota. And we would go back to Egypt every couple of summers to visit my grandmother. And then we would hop our way through Europe, uh, Athens and Rome and Paris and London to visit other professors that he had a connection with. I was too young to understand what we were doing, but they were sharing papers or smoking cigarettes, or I I don't know what they were doing. But one day we were going to meet one of his colleagues in Paris, and we got stopped at a barricade. And it was in the second that the race was going by, the final race. So I'm five years old, and I'm literally at the height of the gears. And that's all I could see. And the sound of those perfectly tuned bicycles got in my DNA. It's the sound of the gears that excited me. And I came to love it. And so I think like my era was in the 70s where I really came to understand what it was. In high school, I did a a semester abroad in Paris and I got to see it live again. So I understood it a little more about the, the strategy and the teams and the way it worked. So it became more than just the sound of the gears to a little boy. Yeah. And you asked me how how I came to watch the Tour de France. That's much, much later. In Europe, it shows all the time on every station while it's on because it's a passion. Here, nobody understood anything about bicycle racing until the 1984 Olympics when Alexi Graywall, an American, won the gold medal. Uh And then they were like, wait a minute, what is this? Prior to that, nobody had any idea. And I would, in the back of a bicycling magazine, I would see an ad in 1976, right? And the ad would be for the British Cycling News. You could send in a self-addressed stamped envelope and an international cashier's check for 90p. And they would send you a mimeographed list of the final times. That was it. That was my access to understanding what was happening in the race. So I would just stare at those times, 80 hours and 16 seconds. 81 hours and four minutes. I would stare at those times and the riders' names. And that was my exposure to it. And then I had to get on my bike as a kid and try and relive it, riding around the lakes in Minneapolis and try and relive that sound. And and it wasn't until probably Lance's first year, which was 98 when he came back, 98, 99. Yeah, yeah, right around then. When you had to buy a special subscription to a rare a cable channel station called Outdoor Life Network, OLN. And that was the only way to watch the tour. And I was so like rewarded after all this time of looking at that mimeographed list of times, like numbers. I was so rewarded that I would watch it for four hours in the morning, even though we had kids who needed me and I I was coaching Little League (laughs) and I I had a job to run. I would watch it for four hours in the morning and then I would finish dinner and I would watch the replay at night for four hours. Cause I was oh, so, I've just felt so rewarded to actually see it happening in detail. 
I love it. Let's go back to when you were watching the, at eye level, like the gear shifts and the bikes go by five years old. What did you feel on the inside that was so exhilarating that made this become a lifelong passion? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that I can put words to it because it was a feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways it was the thrill, even though a five-year-old doesn't think about athleticism or determination or stamina. But I think those things, I came to understand them later. But Mm -hmm. it's just sheer power, the precision of those gears, the sound of those gears, and the power of those guys. It created a wind that hit my face and the wind came from, you know, human generated motion, which was fascinating. And so I think I smelled it and I think I felt it. And I think in some way, the rhythm of those gears changed the way my heart beat forever. So it's like in me rather than something I think about. I love that. That's amazing. And then when was the first time you went from observing to riding? Because I know you do ride. You know, less and less as I get older, it's not so fun to be five miles behind people with blood coming out of your ears and still (laughs) trying to go so hard. But, you know, by the time I guess I was 15, I had a a job uh, as a bike mechanic and I saved a little money and I got a discount at the bike shop and I could buy a racing bike. And I started to ride with people, but this is still like before the 1984 Olympics. And so the riders in Minnesota were geology professors from the University of Minnesota. (laughs) These are not like young, fit. These are kind of older guys who've ridden their whole life. I remember one guy, we would meet on his porch and he would hand roll a filterless cigarette and he would put that cigarette in a coffee can that had a little screen on it Underneath the coffee can, he had a rag that he had soaked in whiskey. And then he would put the lid on the coffee can. So it was a little coffee and a little whiskey and his tobacco. And we would ride as hard as I have ever ridden in my life with these old guys. And then we would come back and they would all smoke a cigarette, a whiskey smoked cigarette. Because that's how it was done, right? In the early days of, of the tour, yeah. when they drink wine as they rode, these amazing athletes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the early days of the tour? Like the smoking and all that kind of stuff? I mean, again, I I don't know. I have a picture of it from probably the 1950 tour right above my desk that I'm looking at now. I mean, it was a different time. They carried their spare tires around their shoulders, right? They they twisted it. And so it was like a vest, like a weird little vest. And they had metal bottles. And in the metal bottles, they put wine with amphetamines to give them a little (laughs) spark. There's a story about some of those guys in the 50s who created an amphetamine suppository. Oh, my gosh. So in the early days of doping, but it would just give them a, you know, a surge of something. Was it performance enhancing or was it just fucking them up? I don't know. But they were always doing things like that that would make them feel. And I think back in the day, I mean, even in the 60s, we were still seeing ads that said, smoking opens your lungs. Uh Smoking is good for your throat or whatever. Easy Uh on the throat. So of course they were smoking because they thought I need more oxygen. I need to open my lungs. I'm Uh being told by the the advertisers, not not by the doctors, by the the doctors that this will open my lungs. So Uh I'm sure it was all connected to that. But there are great stories of, you know, guys hopping on trains 
and finishing three hours earlier than they thought they should finish. And they never fessed up to the fact that they rode a train most of the way. Uh, it, you know, it didn't really get organized and mechanical until into the 70s, I think. There were still guys who were, in the 60s, they were farmers. They were just strong outdoorsmen. And they would take a month off because they planted and the harvest wasn't coming up for two months. And they would go ride the tour and they would win. So it wasn't really the what we know now is the professional, scientific, you know, big money event that it's become. Yeah, and now it's so specialized that you don't you don't have those gritty guys like my hero was Eddie Merricks because I saw him in the seventies. He passed me when I was at the race in the eastern part of France, and he was he'd been my hero. He won every race. He won the races in the spring. He won the races on the cobblestone. He won in the mountains. He won in the sprints. He won. He was the last guy like that. Like he won 525 races in his career. And wow. Lance Armstrong won 50. Uh. There's nobody like him today because they're so specialized. They have to learn how to be aerodynamic and ride their bike this way fast. And so that's all they do. Uh-huh. But back in the day, I loved that sort of grit and determination and human scale. Just go at it. Well, it made the sport very accessible you know, to not just spectators, but, you know, there's something about relating to the athlete on a level of like, I could do that. I could leave my farm. I ride a bike. Yeah, Yeah. I can Mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. The sport and the tour has so many components. We talked about the hills, the flats, the team component. What is so interesting to you about a race that's so dynamic? And do you have a favorite part of the race? It's more of a story. It arcs like a story does. It undulates like a story does. And it has moments of tension and moments of reveal and moments of drifting. And so it feels more like a story. And I think anything that takes place over time, I know we're talking about the Tour de France, but I'll bring up baseball again. Like they play so many games because they take into account that it's, the way the wind is blowing and the way the sun is shining and the way the air is thick or thin. And the, and so you play three game stands because when everything's a little different, it changes the way a victory feels. It changes yeah. the way a loss feels. And so they play 162 games a year, which is unfathomable to a football fan, right? Cause they just like uh-huh. that Sunday afternoon, pop, pop, pop. But yeah. I don't think you get the same dynamic sense of anything could happen. It really amounts to how much did you pay for these players and are they doing their job on this Sunday? Whereas baseball, it's like so many other things come into play. And it's the same in the tour. Like to be able to hang on and stay vital and relevant over 21 days is really a feat of human determination, not of science, not of sponsorship or advertising. It's strictly human determination. You know, if you look at the time, some of those sprinters, They sprint in the early days because it gets the race moving. Then they move into the mountains. But the sprinters have to hang on because the final day in Paris is a sprint. And a sprinter is going to win on the Champs-Élysées. And so those sprinters have to hang on. And they're big guys with big legs because it's their weight that takes them into Mm -hmm. that sprint. And they're in the mountains losing six hours a day. So if you look at those times, the sprinters are like, 15 hours behind the leader. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the winning times and the difference between first, second, and third place is four seconds. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. You can host the best backyard barbecue. 
when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Yeah. Now, Ali, you've talked about a little bit about how, you know, suppositories, amphetamines together, whatever it may be. But I don't think we could talk about the Tour de France without talking a little bit about cheating, performance enhancement, and just how people have tried to get an edge throughout the entire history of the tour. So as a fan, I'm wondering, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about cheating in the sport that you love? It's a good question. I I went to Vietnam on a trip, a cycling trip with some friends this year, and I got really inspired. Sorry to digress. <laughs> no, you're great. I got really inspired to learn more about the country. And because by the time I was 14. April 30th is my birthday. April 30th, 1975 was the the evacuation of Saigon. Oh, wow. And I say to people, the word that I heard most for my first 14 years of life was Vietnam because it was on the news. It wasn't, I love you. It wasn't baseball. It wasn't cycling. It was Vietnam. And so we went there and I just got inspired to research more. And I came back and I, I watched the Ken Burns documentary and I read the Stanley Carnot's book. And I read Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carry. And Tim O'Brien has a line in there about, it's about war, but I think it's really about everything, which is men will always do to each other what men have always done to each other, which is about violence and whatever. But I also think it applies to this, to your question, which 100%. is 100%. People are always going to try and get an edge. People are always going to try and cheat. The early Olympic days, they were always trying. I don't know that they had amphetamine suppositories to stick up their ass, but they had something that they yeah. felt gave them an edge and they kept it a secret from the guy next to them. I think they've always done it. So I don't think it's strict to cycling or what happened to cycling. And the other thing I think is what we demand of those guys, what we want them to do, ride 21 days to such an extent, like we're like the audience of the gladiators in Rome, right? We're, we're like, come on, keep going, go harder, go faster. Yeah. And what are they going to do? There's only so much that a human body can do. And so people start to get the edge. And then either you don't do that and you lose your contract next year because you're eight hours off the time, yeah. or you do figure out a way to do that. So you know, I say to people, Elvis Presley died for our sins, like our our understanding of celebrity, like keep going, keep going up there, keep doing the thing. And I think that these riders are doing what we are demanding they do, which is go faster, go farther, be what we need you to be. Yeah. Is that cheating? Lance Armstrong's, yeah, he's not a Superman, but we all wanted him and expect him to be. So especially because he survived cancer, right? That's how I got into cycling in the Tour de France, because I lived miles away from where Lance grew up. And that was just the most incredible story. But I also wanted to ask you about Greg LeMond. Greg Because Lamont. Greg LeMond was an amazing American. And talk to us about the time about seeing him conquer the Tour de France. Yeah, I mean, it opened up doors. So his first win was 85, which was amazing. Because I think at that time, there were a handful of Americans who'd ever ridden it. 15, yeah. right? And... I ran into him at an airport not long ago, and I reminded him of the story. When I was 16, there were very few bike races that you could enter. 
And there happened to be a big USCF, United States Cycling Federation race in Duluth, Minnesota. And I was living in northern Minnesota working as a bike mechanic that summer. And so everybody came because I think there was like one race in Nevada, one race in Massachusetts and this race. Mm -hmm. So all the youth riders came and we got in this. It was a century race that went around the city of Duluth three times, 33 miles each time for 100 miles. And we were on our second lap and this guy blew past the Peloton, the group of riders, the group of 16 year old, blew past and we were like, oh, we got to catch him. And we started to go after him. And the race car came up and said, don't bother. He's 33 miles ahead of you. He's on his last lap. You're on your second lap. <laughs> that wow. was Greg Lamont. So he <gasps> passed me and we all knew his name from that minute. And we watched him. He went to Europe the next year and he started racing. And it was a decade later that he won. But it really opened up the doors. I mean, that was 85. So it was a year after Alexi Graywell won the Olympics. And it was a year after the old wool bike shorts made out of merino wool with an actual deer chamois crotch in them were replaced by spandex and lycra. And so everybody came into that world, right? 84, 85. So I think we were primed for Greg LeMond. And I think on the one level, it was great to see an American open up the doors for the sport. But I think it was also American domination kind of thing, which it's not so much fun for me, that that conversation. But he, mm-hmm. he's an amazing guy. And I think he was really one of the last riders who was not in that doping era. The doping yeah. era started right after him. And I think it confused the hell out of him. I mean, I don't know if you know the story of, so he won in 85. And then somewhere around 87, he was hunting, like grouse hunting with his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law tripped over a log and the gun hit the ground and this, the buckshot went into Greg's ass. <gasps> he was in the critical care for many, many months. They didn't know if he would live. Then they didn't know if he would ride. Yeah. He came back and he won in 89 and 90. He won two times after that death-defying thing. So he really was one of those original... He wasn't a potato farmer, but he was a guy who could do it all and ride it all and do it of, you know, his own determination and stamina and not enhanced in any way. And I believe him. I believe that he wasn't. Yeah. That's another good example of how, like you were saying, the race is its own story, you know, and here are the characters. The race is part of the, you know, of course, its own character, but you have the writer's within the story each year they differ a little bit the weather the elements that being said i love to watch my favorite movie over and over i don't care that i know the outcome are you that way with like a specific tour like you'll watch you know 87 or you'll watch 89 you can watch the whole run of the race no and i'll tell you why it's because i think it's a really hard sport to shoot uh, and even now when you watch it on, I don't know who's carrying it. I, I don't even know how I watch TV anymore. I like turn on the app and I, I go, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's there, but it's there, but they're, you know, they do their best to make it make sense to a Western American audience of mm-hmm. here's the goalpost and the ball goes through the goalpost and they try and make it that, but the strategy of how the 
the riders actually help each other, hurt each other, challenge each other. It's very hard to film. My, you know, my friend Tim Grady for many years had the rights to the North American rights to the tour and he made videos of it. And I would buy those videos and they were great for a guy who loves to watch people just pedal. But to understand the story of it, I just think it's a hard thing to shoot. Mm-hmm. If you're really interested in it, there's a classic movie from the 70s made by Jurgen Leth, the Danish filmmaker, who is the godfather of Danish cinema and was the instructor of Lars von Trier's. And he made a movie called A Sunday in Hell. And it's the story of this one day spring classic that Eddie Merckx was riding in. And it's one of the best coverages, you know, how the, how you cover a race, one of the best examples. And I'm sorry I didn't answer your question very well, but I don't go back and watch it because it's kind of like epileptic chaos, right? It's just like people yeah. pedaling. Uh, you don't really understand what's going on the way they present it in these videos. But that movie is really stunning. I am definitely going to check it out. You talked about your sons earlier, and you've been talking about your love for the Tour de France. Do you share this with anyone in your family? Or is this kind of just something that you do for you? Oh, no. It's a family. It's bigger than Christmas for us. Bigger than Christmas? Yeah. We have a pool right now. There's a there's a fantasy league, and we all have fantasy teams. I love this. And then I come up with questions rare questions, not who's going to win, because that's a little less fun, but like how many people will be on the DNF list, did not finish list? What is going to be the shortest time gap between winner and second, but what's going to be the longest time gap? And then people have to study the course and start to figure out like, okay, what would create the biggest time gap and what will allow for the shortest time gap? And I put a hundred dollars on every question. And so the whole family and all the significant others and everybody gets involved. And I love this. It's really fun. It sounds just like some of these Oscar parties you go to where you have to guess best picture, best director, and you have the pool for that. It sounds a lot of fun. It's fun, and it goes on for a month, and so we all talk every day, right? And it's it's a great way to stay connected because I have a son who lives in Europe, and I have a son who lives in Minnesota, and we live in Oregon. and But all the spouses get involved, and it's really, really great. My wife, too, she loves it. And, you know, we were just on uh, vacation together because I was we were apart for – 20 months while I was working on a secret invasion. Wow. So we went on this long vacation, just the two of us, and we checked out in Europe. And it's all we talked about every day was the Tour de France <laughs> and how, what should her pool look like and who should she bet on. So yeah, I get everybody involved. I love that. It's turned into part of your family. It's integrated into your community and your lives. And that's what a great love of something does is it brings people together and you know facilitates conversation and relationships. That's wonderful. What do you think it touches in you personally? It's more than just the childhood memory of seeing the bike swoosh past and having that incredible moment. What do you think like the tour means to you emotionally? Why? Why why this sport? Why this event? That's a trick question. No, it's a good question. It's a difficult why this event? I mean, part of it is why cycling? Yes. Part of it is how I feel on the bike, which is it's me and my ability and my fitness and my determination, my stamina, things like that, that I think relate to real life and work in a way that maybe hitting a home run doesn't, you know, maybe 
banging into some guys to get the football into the end zone doesn't. Those are different sort of competition. And I think even though the Tour de France is a team sport, it is individuals on a bike making that bike go forward. And that's always excited me, those human-powered things. So I think that my love of cycling then equates to my love of the greatest cycling event that happens and you get to watch these guys. Like it's mesmerizing for me not to watch the strategy or the finish. It's just mesmerizing to watch them pedal, mm-hmm. especially on the flats and in the mountain stages. You can watch three hours of guys pedaling, just pedaling, drinking, getting a little food and pedaling. And it's meditative for me. It's beautiful. And the finish, great. And the guy who went great, but it's that them making it go forward, which is a lot of what we do in life is just one foot after the other. And I mean, I don't know how many days we shot on Secret Invasion, but there's a little bit of Tour de France determination to just, you wake up, you go back at it again. You wake up, you go back. It was like over a hundred days we shot. Wow. And you need some sense of that. Like there are no home runs in a hundred day production. There are no, and then we won the game. It's just get back on the bike and pedal, get back on the bike and pedal. So it is a very applicable metaphor for life, I think, when you put it that way. For me, it has been. And maybe I'm twisting it into something, but it's really... No, I'm like right there with you. (laughs) It reminds me of some other passions that we've had on the show and, and I've met people in real life. I mean, whether it's people watching other people bike in the Tour de France or big fans of esports, watching people play video games or watching people stream at home. I think people enjoy seeing something they love at another level. And it sounds like the Tour de France is just the peak for cycling. I'm sorry, did you say watching people play video games? That's the thing. That's what kids do. Have you not seen this yet? They watch YouTube videos of other people playing video games. But the way you were describing how you watch the Tour de France... It was pretty similar. Wow. They sit there and they watch someone that's better than them do something they love. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. I can't stand playing video games because it's not the same as doing, you know, and then to watch somebody play. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone has their passions. I saw an ad the other day for somebody who you can pay them to do Wordle for you so that it gets your Wordle score up. So when you show your date or your friend, how high your Wordle score is. (laughs) So yeah, there are uh, a lot of things you should not be doing instead of watching the Tour de France. I'm available for anyone who needs that in their life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you want to hire Claire to be a Wordler, she's available. Yes. Well, Allie, this has just been incredible. I mean, you've really gone to depth and not just about the history of the tour, but really given us a picture of why you love it. Could you do us a favor and give a love letter to the Tour de France before you go? Sure. I'm going to repeat a lot of the stuff I've already said. Oh, yeah. Dear Tour de France, I think that you have taught me and guided me with a sense of determination and a sense of stamina and a sense of desire, passion that keeps me going in my life and in my work in a way that few other things do. Love, Allie. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. 
I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Claire, I am always shocked when we have a guest and they say, oh, you know, I really don't know much about the history of something. And then they just go into detail after detail after detail. It's the best. But I feel like that's like almost everyone. They're like, oh, yeah, I really don't know very much about it. But let me give you every granular piece of historical information, perspective, sponsorship, athlete, you know, results and whatnot. I feel like that's what fanatics is. But you know what really resonated with me is when Ali started talking about the fact that like the race is a story. It's not unlike, you know, filming a movie over however many yes. except this race happens over what, 21 days. It is. Uh-huh. You could see why an artist would be attracted to this. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like Ali, you know, in another life would have been a writer in the Tour de France, you know, in another world, another multiverse, he would have been doing it. And I love that him and his family do fantasy Tour de France because I do fantasy football and I know how crazy people get about that. So hearing him talk about that, that blew my mind and let me know just how insane and awesome he is. I mean, I think that they should like market that. I bet there would be a lot of gearheads, bikers that would love to do the Tour de France fantasy. The Tour de Fantasy. Yes, there, there you go. <laughs> okay, Jake, I'm totally setting myself up for this question, okay. but I want to ask you. I'm really curious. What is the furthest you've ever ridden your bike? Oh, my gosh. So, so I'll tell you a little story. My dad was teaching me how to ride my bike when I was like five or six, and I couldn't get it. And he just kept getting so angry and yelling at me that I didn't ride a bike until I was in sixth grade. Oh my! God. And my dad's great. You know, he just he just got frustrated because it's hard being a parent and seeing your kid not listen to you and fall down. I'm sure that's frustrating. But uh, I started biking, and I actually have an e-bike, Claire, and I rode that e-bike from West Hollywood all the way to Glendale. Nice. That is very yeah, good. So. That was pretty far, and I survived. What about you? What's the farthest bike ride you've done? Well, I'm glad you asked, Jake. I'm really glad you asked. So years ago, BC, which is the term I like to say before children, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. I did the AIDS ride, and I rode my bike from San Francisco to LA. What? Yes, it was seven days. We camped out at night in tents, and every day you would ride. The shortest day, I believe, was like 62 miles, and the longest day was 124 miles. And it was an incredible experience. Yeah. I went on that ride not knowing anyone. I didn't know anyone. I didn't go with friends. I didn't have like a group I was with. I literally went solo and it was like a really cathartic, amazing experience for me. So I always hearken back to that as one of my like aha moments of peace and tranquility and biking, endless biking. Wow. Well, (laughs) I, I can't top that, Claire. So on that note, fanatics, thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm talking about going across the city. Claire's like, yeah, I went from San Fran to L.A. because she's a superstar. I told you I was teeing myself up for the, you know, question. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And, and it was a good it was a good tee up. I'm going to tell you this. I grew up in rural Ohio and my grandfather and his friend, when they were 12, 12, rode their bikes from where we lived in Ohio, which at the time my grandparents lived in a town called Sydney, Ohio, which is both where my parents were raised. And they rode to the World Fair in St. Louis. 
they were 12. They camped out on the side of the road. And these were not like Schwinn, like nice specialist bikes. This no. was like like a very early version of the bike, you know? There's no gears. You're just going. It's one gear. Go. You're just going. Yeah. So it's somewhat ingrained in my family to do like crazy things, whether it's that or other, which we don't have time to talk about. But <laughs> the craziness comes by me naturally. That's my point, Jake. All right. Well, I, I hear it. And every week I find something even more fascinating about Claire. So, Fanatics, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And we can't wait to see you next week. Yeah, see you guys later. Bye. Hey, guys, before you go, coming up next week, we have the amazing Graham Parkhurst. Yes, you know him from Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, The Umbrella Academy, Titans, the Hallmark movie Boyfriends of Christmas Past. Yes, Graham is coming on to talk about his fanaticism of candy, all things sweet. And even we spend a lot of time defining what is candy. That is a very personal question if you ask me. Tune in next week to see what Graham thinks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. You can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. Enhance your listening experience with Wondry Plus. Enjoy ad-free listening, exclusive content, binges, and more. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts.